3: Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket podcast. Audi has officially unveiled the e-tron GT, its first electric sports car and Pocket editor Chris Hall tuned into the virtual event to find out all the details and joins us to tell us all the juicy bits. Meanwhile, as the 2021 Six Nations Rugby Tournament kicks off, I've been chatting to former England rugby captain Will Carling about how the use of stats is changing the way we watch and play the game. Apocalypse Reviews Editor Mike has been reviewing the new Xiaomi Mi 11 smartphone. Is it any good? Is Xiaomi worth our time? And is it likely to be your next Android phone? Keep listening to find out. Now, Chris, back to you. Tell us more about the new Etron GT.
2: The... Audi e-tron GT is a car that we've been waiting for for a couple of years. The strange thing about this launch was that the car was first unveiled as a concept in 2018. And I happened to be at the LA Motor Show where they showed off that car. And at the time, I thought, this looks like a real car. And lo and Mm. behold, it was the real car. The only difference was that they they added the door handles to the concept version. And that was essentially it. So. We knew exactly what this car was going to look like. We knew that it was going to be long and low and sleek, very Audi, very futuristic and and very, very very powerful and making a statement about sporty electric Audis moving forward. The important thing you need to know is that the underpinnings of this car are the same as the Porsche Taycan. They worked on developing okay. that platform together, but then everything they built on top of this new GT is all from Audi. So, the essential parts that you need to know are that there will be two different versions of it at launch. There'll be the standard version that they're calling the Audi e-tron GT Quattro, and then there will be a more advanced version that they're calling the Audi RS e-tron GT. The significant bit okay. there is this is their first electric car to get the RS tag, and RS is what they put on all of their performance vehicles. So that's quite exciting. Again, it's a statement of intent about who they think is going to buy this car how fast they're going to drive it and how often they're going to drive it fast
3: and so from what we've seen the specs wise does it live up to this sports car label and more specifically for audi fans the rs label
2: there's certainly some big numbers coming out here uh there's a a 93 kilowatt hour battery sitting in the floor of the car a very low centre of gravity because it's right in the floor. They say that the centre of gravity here is lower than it is on the R8, which is their proper sports car. It's not quite as fast as the R8. The R8 will do mm. not to 62 in 3.1 seconds um, from its 5.2-litre v10 i think it is in the latest version whereas this one in the rs version will take 3.3 seconds oh my
3: goodness that's that's disastrous surely
2: the thing that people (laughs) will be keen to point out is that the tesla model s in ludicrous mode will go slightly faster and that kind of shows some of the interesting things that happen in electric cars one is that you can have motors that are rated for a particular output, and then you can provide a boost for those motors to make them go even faster. And that's what Tesla really does. It puts in a load of power to get huge speeds, whereas Audi doesn't seem to have gone that fast. They're, they're again, like talk, like Porsche were, talking about the repeat performance of that so that you can you can use your car to drive more like a sports car, with bursts of acceleration without it suddenly then saying, that's it, you need to let the the car calm down a little bit and putting any restrictions in place.
3: And so is it, when are we, as I say, it's taken almost three years now then to get to this point from a concept to reality. Is it going to take another three years before you'll be able to buy it?
2: Uh, the well, the good news there is no. It should be available around May. Um, I don't know whether that's the orders or actually on the road, but we're expecting to see it around May. That may be different around the world, and of course, there will be quite a large price tag attached to it. Okay. The good news is the starting price is just over, well, just under eighty thousand pounds. I say huh. that's good news. <laughs> the RS model. Up at the the top end will cost over one hundred and thirty thousand pounds.
3: But then so, that is kind of—I know that sounds a lot of money, and it is a lot of money. But we are talking about a sort of a, a top of the range sports car from Audi. So you kind of kind of come to expect those prices. And if you—if I remember rightly—the Taycan from Porsche is is around about that as well, isn't it?
2: Yeah, the, it comes in around the same same sort of pricing and positioning as the Taycan. A, a lot of the performance stats seem to be very similar as well. Dual motors, you know, motors front and rear, which is something that we've seen from Tesla in the past. This has four-wheel drive and four-wheel steering as well that's going to hopefully help it corner better. But it's also a full sports saloon with rear seats. It will take five passengers. There's a reasonable size boot on the back of it. So I can see this appealing to people wanting it as their company car, the executive saloon, executive sports saloon is where it's really going to be be pitched, I think. And there'll be a lot of directors of companies who think this is exactly what I need to get myself to and from work. Um, it very much is a Ted- Tesla Model S rival in that regard.
3: Still to come, Mike gives us his verdict on the Xiaomi Mi 11 smartphone.
1: The, the main departure here is you don't get those um, telephoto lenses. So there's no proper optical zoom. Um, and... That really is probably, that's the kind of thing people. I think people are looking for.
3: Well, Carling, the former England rugby captain, knows a thing or two about the game. With 72 caps for England, 59 of which were captaining the team, the now-retired player is also an AWS Six Nations ambassador for this year's tournament. Yes, the same AWS that powers millions of websites and services around the world is now using the same technology to power match stats in rugby, allowing viewers and coaches to see key data points like visits to the 22, dominant tackles, and kick predictor stats, all thanks to its technological and machine learning capabilities. On the eve of the first weekend of the games of the tournament, I caught up with Will to talk stats, safety, and whether the sheer amount of data now available to players, coaches, and viewers is helping or hindering the game. I started by asking him why things like match stats are important and what they're trying to achieve.
0: I think, Stuart, what are they there to do? They're, I think they're there to to help unravel um, the game to, to fans because rugby can be a fairly complex game. And I think if you can present... Um, great data. They they give insight and they give a feel as to why a game or why a certain team in a game is is dominating it and doing well. And I think there's been a huge amount of, of thought um and effort put into to what those those stats should be. So when you look at you know from kick predictor visits to the twenty two rucks turnovers, dominant tackles, the power game, those those key um analytics i think you know uh, uh, what uh, what determines successful and less successful teams in in rugby
3: and do you find that you know as you say there it can be for a newcomer it can can be quite complicated yeah um and you know perhaps more so now when you're some of the nuances of 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 when you're in a scrum and why why did that suddenly happen and, and things like that how how do we go about overcoming that
0: I think there's always going to be um fine detail in certain sports that if that if you're a casual observer of it you you're not going to quite understand um but I think w- with rugby what we, what we want to do is try and clarify some of the the key areas and and try and explain um some of the key areas and I think you know like rucks um you know the huge amount of rucks these days they're fiercely contested but Actually, it's the turnovers. You know, when when you're pinching ball in in those rucks, that is actually crucial to the game. Um, and I think before sometimes you'd see stats. It was you know here's a number of you know this is how many rucks England won, but it's actually how many turnovers did they win? That's the crucial bit. That's those are the sort of little bits of information that that show you where games can turn and and, and be won and lost. And same with dominant tackles just totting up numbers of tackles that a team made is that's fine and it can look impressive but actually it's dominant tackles where someone is knocked backwards where you've disrupted um, the opposition's uh, you know momentum um, and you could actually even create a turnover those are the key bits in a game um, And I think if if as a casual observer you start understanding those bits then you get far more enjoyment out of watching the game.
3: Yeah. Now, one of the games that, you know, moving away from rugby just for a brief moment, you know, if you look at F1, for example, very technical sport, very sort of stat driven. And a couple of years now in the F1 season, we've, you know, you can get accessory kind of complementary apps to give you access to more, even more data and and driving lines and all those kind of things for, for the teams. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where, you know you're talking about this data being provided to the broadcasters and commentators so they can help explain the game a bit more do you think we'll get to a point where you know you'll have a complimentary app that is providing some of this data so i can like check out individual players you know and and see how how they're playing and, and matching that in real time as well
0: do you know what, Stuart? I think rugby's got to be very well uh, got to be very aware of of how other sports are uh, are developing how um fans appetites change for for information and i think that if that's the way sport is going and and i think it it is in 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 a lot of areas then rugby's got to look at that and and i think it would be you know who knows it'd be fascinating i i my my younger children when you when you watch sport with them they love the data they love the information they want to know how fast players are they want to know how far that kick was mm. um and I think that's something that rugby needs to be aware of. And got would be amazing if you if you could sit and watch a game and then just think, wow, Johnny May just covered forty yards, and that he's quite fast, yeah. isn't he? Um, <laughs> and I, and I think that's the bit that people go, wow, that would be that would be brilliant.
3: Now, how, how useful do you think all of this data would have been to you when you were captain of the England team? Do you, do you think it would have been? incredibly handy or do you think it would have been a burden that would have like taken away from the focus of actually we've just got to play ball
0: no i think um it would have been handy i think rugby is a a fluid game you know you have 40 minutes of 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 play so you know as you say you mentioned formula one some people mention american sport to me like nfl which is very stop start and you think data and and that can can play i think a more crucial role in it but i think when you're analysing the opposition, when you're looking at um, at trends, uh, how they kick, where they kick, you know, you've got heat maps of, of where they like to play. That kind of analysis for you uh, as a captain and as a team, when you when you're preparing, would be would be outstanding. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it w- it would have been really useful. I think it would have just given you a little bit more confidence of trying to predict what what might be happening. But I think there's also the area that that in sport your emotional and, and mental ability is always going to be crucial too. So, you know, data can help um, massively, but it doesn't take away from players have got to be in the right frame of mind and, and deal with, with pressure and, and scenarios as they come up, um, you know, and they always will have to.
3: Yeah, it was one, I was. I spoke to James Haskell last year around about the same time of, of the Six Nations and it was one of those things where he was, he was saying that he'd wished he'd had more data at the time and they were starting to capture more data in the England team. But at the same time, there was a sense of not using that to personalise the training for him as much as perhaps he wanted it to be. Do you think there's a tendency to sometimes in, in rugby or other sports to just get the data for data's sake
0: no i think that i think they are moving i mean i think james um has, i think james would have been one of those players that you wouldn't want to give too much data to because i think it would it would <laughs> it would uh, blow james's mind but <laughs> <laughs> but um no you see and actually and that's fascinating listening you know james would have want, wanted more data to improve his training and you know that's classic and i think um that's one of the areas that i think england england um and i'm sure lots of the other teams are focusing in on how can they personalize training, how can they Im- improve um their their training sessions across the team by using data, by making it more specific, more match-related, um, more, you know, the realism of of what it's like out in a game and and posing the, the team the same issues and problems and difficulties that they face during a match. And I think data is allowing them to do that. So you know, I, I think used in the right way, as you say, it's crucial. I think, I think it went through a phase of, as I said before, if you're just telling me how many tackles a player made or how many yards he made, that's pretty mm. bland data to me because it's not giving me real insight into into how he played. But if you're telling me how many disruptive dominant tackles he made and, and how many crucial you know yards and, and players that he beat, then that becomes you know useful uh, informative data.
3: Yeah, now going on to sort of using technology within the game, um, you know, some people think that VAR, the introduction of VAR, VAR has done, you know, the, the, the TMO and all that kind of stuff has done really well in, in rugby. It doesn't seem to be working that well in football. But I think probably the nuances of, of the game are there. Do you feel that the introduction of that kind of technology breaks the flow of that game? You know, you're saying you've got 40 minutes and you, you want to do as well as you can and, as, you know, keep that flow going do you think that kind of helps the game or do you think it hinders it
0: i think it helps in the sense that it, it it's a definite answer isn't it and um i think it's it's how referees and tmos you know how quickly they can they can process and and make a decision is crucial sometimes you know when i you sit there and you think they're watching it for the fourth or fifth time and you sort of feel like going come on guys we <laughs> we want to get on with this um so i think uh useful data like i think cricket um you know when they when they um look at uh, you know wicket, wickets and Hawkeyes. Some of that stuff is is brilliant. The same in tennis, um, but I think you know in in rugby, I I actually do believe that more data um, in terms of you know if if you had sensors in in shoulders, um, you know for the, for the scrum would be able to tell you where the power's coming, what the angles are, all that sort of stuff would be fascinating and would again give referees and TMOs a real insight into. Why did that scrum collapse? Um, you know, whereas you're looking at it with the naked eye, you just really don't know. So, um, I, I think it can be really useful. It's just almost trying to process it as quickly as possible.
3: And if there was of the five um, match stats that AWS is is working on to provide, which one do you think is is probably a tough question? Which is the most important? You know, if if I'm going to go and watch, the, you know, the games at the weekends and stuff, thinking right, this is the one that actually. Everybody really pays attention to and and really determines whether the game is going in the direction that the team wants.
0: Do you know what, It is hard because, sort of, you know, thinking about the visits to the 22, you know, how many, when they look at the number of occasions the team being there and how many points have accumulated, that that shows you precision and and ruthlessness of a a team. But I've sort of caught between dominant tackles and the sort of turnovers, rucks and turnovers, because turnovers can be, can really be crucial in matches but and so can dominant tackles. So somewhere between either of those two, I think really give you a feel of, of a team and, and and how they've managed to win a game.
3: And I think I know your answer on this one, but <laughs> who do you think is going to win the
0: tournament? Uh, do you know, I, I, I look at Ireland, I, a, I've always been a big fan of, of, of Andy Farrell. I think he's very shrewd. I think France um, look very impressive. Um but I, my heart and um, my brain, you know, will say England. But and, and I and I would love to think it will be England. I think they've got a great chance, but geez, they're going to have to play well.
3: Yeah, they did well in the um, autumn internationals. So it was, they were, it was great, and it was good to see the rugby's back on on the telly again.
0: Yeah, and I think you know they did they did do well in the autumn, but I think there's a there's a real desire to sort of step up and um, you know improve their sort of performances, and and if they can do that, they they will be very hard to beat.
3: And the final question I have is, how do you think you know if we were to have this conversation in five years' time, how much do you think tech will have snuck in and, and changed the game even more, or do you think we're at a point now where we're using tech in in rugby to the best of our advantage and it, it's not going to see a huge step change in the future to not make sure you know to make sure that that flow and the the core of the game, or what it believes and stands for hasn 't changed
0: Well, I would hope Stuart that tech's been in, been um, included. Say for for player welfare, I think that's an area that rugby really needs to look at. And say concussion, I think sensors in in gum shields um, could help massively in terms of how how we deal with with um, with concussion and the, sort of the knocks to the brain and and monitoring those on a, on a regular basis at training, not just in games. I think that would make players, parents, um, everyone feel far more confident about playing rugby that you know that your, your brain is being monitored very carefully by by the doctors and, and the medical team rather than it just being how you feel. So that's one area I think tech could really help rugby.
3: In the recent past, there was a moment when Huawei, the then champion Chinese export, looked poised to strike as the next big brand. Sure, it's still huge, just a little less global right now. But the tables turned fast, largely down to tumultuous political wars locking out Google services, which left the door somewhat open in Europe for other brands to step in. And pushing its foot through that gap with keen assertion is Xiaomi. And pushed it has with the Mi 11, complete with a curved screen design and a fresh take on cameras. It's also the first phone to deploy Qualcomm Snapdragon 888 top-tier processor. But is this all enough? Well, Mike Lowe, Pocket Limp Reviews Editor, joins me now to tell us what it's like.
1: Yeah, so it's it's a really decent phone, actually. Um, as you kind of touched upon, kind of running down the, the rabbit hole of recent past, there's been quite a lot of uh, you know talk about Huawei as a, a major competitor that kind of had its uh, real peak moment, I think around the P30 kind of time. And then there's been this moment where uh, plenty of other brands have been in and operating really well, like Samsung, which obviously isn't a Chinese brand anyway. Um, And there's kind of been this moment that's kind of opened up to allow really the competition to come in and come in stronger than before. So the Mi 11 is by no means kind of new as a series. Xiaomi's been making phones Mm. for, gee, I think since, is it 2011 or 2013? so quite a long time. And it's really the accumulation of that in a way. It's this kind of device that is trying to bring top-end stuff to you, but without some of the crazy,
3: crazy price tags that we've been seeing. And so do you think it achieves that?
1: Yeah, well, they're obviously trying to make a big point in that. So back in December, at the end of uh, 2020, they announced way ahead of schedule, actually, that it was going to be the first phone with um, a Qualcomm Snapdragon 888, which is the, the very top end processor you can get now. Um, mm. So they're ahead of the curve on that. And it's like, it's kind of like a waving the flag thing, hey, look at us. We can do this. We're, we're first here. And getting that in a phone, especially one that's priced at about 800 quid, um, makes it run, you know, really pretty nicely when you've got apps and games and whatever. There's no challenge whatsoever on that. It runs really, really well. Um, the one issue they, they seem to have, and this is something I've been going on about a little bit for quite some time is just software. There's always this kind of extra layer of software that can slightly get in the way, um, make certain things not happen quite as well as they could on other devices. So the kind of gamble in a way you're taking with with Xiaomi here is um, maybe notifications won't happen in quite the same way. You've got to tinker around with things to to get things to happen exactly as you may have come to expect. So I'm kind of hoping that will get sorted out in, in future software releases as they become... Kind of more prominent and more targeting of you know the European nations ultimately,
3: and so what's the you know is the camera is, so everything seems to be fine, so is the camera good is that processor does is there enough apps out there to actually utilize that processor, or are we kind of stuck in that where it's a bit too early
1: <laughs> it's kind of that's always the big thing isn't it you, you can you could probably go down a step and still run things really nicely it's just you might get that extra bit out of it um, ultimately the, the top end like the, the 800 series um, will allow certain things to happen so here you've got a really high resolution screen um, it's WQHD plus which is basically 2k um, and you can run that at 120 hertz um, if you were to step down in certain processor levels you wouldn't be able to, to do that so it's delivering upon just some of the sort of real nice high-end uh, possibilities and, and delivering those well um, camera wise it's quite an interesting one actually because what we've seen sort of time and time again is many manufacturers are now putting out you know three four five cameras and saying "Oh, it's the best thing ever but at the lower end of the market a lot of them just a bit a bit naff um they've kind of xiaomi's moved away from that a bit here which is quite refreshing to see so it's kind of gone with a triple rear but one of them is a really high resolution sensor which delivers really decent quality the other is actually a macro um which I think they call a tele-macro. So it kind of zooms in like for close-ups about, I think it's four times. And it's it's actually pretty decent compared to some of the ones we've been seeing more recently. Um, and then it's got an ultra-wide as well. But the, the main departure here is you don't get those um, telephoto lenses. So there's no proper optical zoom. Um, and right. that really is probably, that's kind of the thing people, I think people are looking for. Um, and if you were to go across to like a Samsung and the S21, you're going to get an optical zoom. So although that lacks here, whether that will massively matter given the price difference, um, is up for question, really.
3: I suppose, you know, you mentioned the Galaxy S twenty one there is you know, that's the other big phone that we've seen this year so far. Hmm. Um, certainly in the Android space. What would you of the two, are they are they do you find yourself in a situation where you'd go, Well, is it the S twenty one or is it the Mi eleven? or are they just so different that you it's not the same audience anyway? So there's it's Full hearted to draw that comparison.
1: Um, they are they're certainly gunning for the same kind of space or the same audience. At least um, I think that's kind of Xiaomi's play in a way. It's like, hey, look, we're here. We're we're normal. We're competitive. We're offering some some solid stuff. Um, but if you were to lay both in front of me, I would go honestly with the the Samsung at this moment in time because uh, it just has the more polished software experience, and and that's kind of the one hurdle that once um, Xiaomi improves upon is really going to be able to kind of show not only is there this potential, but it can be fully realized, I think. And that's that's when it can really step up.
3: So the final question I have, Mike, is who is this? who should go and buy this?
1: I think someone who wants to do things a little bit differently or not be part of, of the norm. There's some really big features here um, that are a step away from some of the more obvious purchases. Uh, But whether that brings with it a layer of risk is uh, a bit of an open question.